How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm your host, Justin Podur. For the next three episodes, I'm going to be looking at the case of Hassan Diab, the Lebanese-Canadian sociology professor currently in a French jail, accused of a bombing in Paris in 1980. Hassan Diab's case has inspired a network of support in Ottawa, where he's from. The case leads us into some very strange corners of the law, including the acceptability of intelligence information as evidence and extradition agreements between countries. It also leads to some even murkier questions about the occasional sacrifice of a person's freedom, often a person of Muslim origin, in secret deals that are made between countries. Hassan Diab is currently in a French prison. On September 30th, I attended a screening of the film Rubber Stamped, the Hassan Diab story, at Beit Satoun in Toronto. One of the attendees, Suzanne Weiss, had visited Hassan Diab in prison a year before. I'm here with Suzanne Weiss at the, uh, at the event for Hassan Diab. Suzanne, you, uh, you, told a sto- you visited Hassan last year in prison, and you told the, uh, the people gathered here tonight a, a story of what, what you experienced there. Can you just retell that story right now? Okay. Uh, I went with my husband, John Riddell, to France for a, a, a vacation, and we happened to uh, know about the Hassan Diab case, so we wanted to visit him in prison. And we did. And it took two hours. Uh, Once we got there, it took two hours of processing before we were allowed to go through a a gate to determine whether we had any uh, armaments or anything bad, you know, that... Uh, on our bodies and uh, at that point they made me take off my bra because it had an uh, it had an underwire and uh, then I went back and they let me in with my husband and we wait another hour and this is not just us but all the people who came to the prison to visit their loved ones they had to go through this process Every time they go through to the prison to visit their loved ones, it's a terrible thing. Then finally, after another hour, uh, we were allowed, we came with presents for Hassan Diab, a few books and a few, uh, not videos, CDs, music. And they only allowed one book and one CD. And we don't know why. Why they couldn't allow a few books, because he's not allowed to go to the library there anyway. And then we were we went into a, a small uh, cubicle and waited for Hassan for another 45 minutes. And I was uh, just about to bang on the walls and bang on the window and ask them what the heck was going on. As they came to the door, they said, okay, here's Hassan. 
Hassan Diab. Hassan Diab uh, is a very frail man and a very lovely person and he was overjoyed to see us and he said that they hadn't even told him he had anybody waiting. Just at the last moment they said, okay Hassan, you have somebody here. So they gave us, we were supposed to have a half hour, they gave us 28 minutes and we spoke to Hassan and he told us about the conditions in his uh, jail. He's um, uh, what, he, he's uh, in solitary confinement and uh, they have a light uh, which uh, is always illuminated throughout the night so he cannot get a, a decent uh, night's sleep. He has a lot of noise from all the other jail cells around him so he is bombarded by noise. In addition, uh, they fingerprint him every day and he says, well how many times will my fingerprints change? Uh, and also he explained he feels like he's in a Kafka story, you know, where he doesn't know why he's there, what is, uh, you know, the his accusers, who are his accusers are, what he's accused of, and uh, he misses his family terribly. And but he is very pleased that we have a committee to defend him in Canada, and I'm very pleased to be part of that committee. Thank you, Suzanne Weiss. What is this crime that Hassan Diab is accused of? The October 1980 bombing at Rue Copernic in Paris killed four people and injured dozens of others. It happened on October 3rd, 1980, and was the subject of a 2015 Radio-Canada documentary, Rue Copernic, l'histoire du attentat. The documentary relied heavily on analysis by French journalist Jean Chichizola, co-author of the only book I was able to find on the bombing, L'Affaire Copernic, Les Secrets d'un Attentat Antisémite. Very similar titles, there are articles in both the Canadian and French press about Hassan Diab's case, but about the 1980 bombing itself, we have to start with these two sources, the documentary and the book. And given the reliance of the documentary on the book, this comes down to one source, the 2009 book by Jean Chichizola and his co-author, Hervé Deguin. I got myself a copy of the book. Here's the story that it tells. France in 1980 has many similarities with France today. The past few years in France have been several have seen several shocking terrorist attacks, the worst of which were the November 2015 attacks. In 1980, we had not yet entered into the War on Terror era, but the mood was in the air. The War on Terror was first declared, after all, by U.S. President Ronald Reagan in 1984, but there had been terrorist attacks in Europe for many decades already by then. Autumn 1980 was a bad one for terrorism in Europe. On August 2nd, 1980, a bombing killed 85 people in Bologna, Italy. Fascists were convicted of that bombing. On September 26th, Nazi bombers killed 13 people at Oktoberfest in Munich in West Germany. Then, Rucapernic followed in Paris on October 3rd. Because it was fascists and Nazis doing the bombings in Italy and Germany, and because 
it was obviously an anti-Semitic attack on a synagogue, French investigators and the people who came out in hundreds of thousands to demonstrate against the Rue Copernic attack suspected the extreme right of responsibility for the bombing of the synagogue in Paris. But as they worked on the case, French investigators came to believe the suspects were actually from the Middle East. Here's what they put together. An eyewitness saw a young man of average height wearing a motorcycle helmet stop his motorcycle in front of the synagogue and leave it there. French police took this lead and ran with it. Store owners who saw the suspect said he was a Mediterranean type, dark-haired, thin with a mustache, between 25 to 28 years old and about 1.64 to 1.67 meters in height, and wearing sunglasses. Tracking down the motorcycle purchase, they got a name, Alexander Panadriou, a technician with a passport from Cyprus. Following the passport, they found that Panadriou entered France via Lyon on September 15th, stayed at the Hotel Celtic on September 22nd, stayed in room 110, had an encounter with a sex worker who also gave testimony about him. His French wasn't strong, he smoked cigarettes, and he paid with US $100 bills. When the French police contacted the foreign ministry in Cyprus, they came to the conclusion that Panadrio's passport was a fake. Their profiling told them that this type of fake passport from Cyprus was frequently used by terrorists from the Middle East. That's a quote from the book, page 69. The police also concluded that the type of explosive used indicated Middle Eastern terrorism. So pretty good leads, right? The motorcycle and the faked passport provide information for the profile to suspect Middle Eastern terrorists instead of homegrown right-wingers, and following the motorcyclist provides a description, average height, slim build, man in his 20s with a mustache and dark hair, and a name, Alexander Penadriou. But here's the leap. The judicial police in Germany, called the Bundeskriminalamt, or BKA, are in charge of anti-terrorism in Germany at the time. The BKA paid special attention to a German leftist group called the Red Army Faction. Starting in November 1980, the BKA got in touch with the French police with some information they got from their surveillance of left groups in Germany, which the police said were linked to Middle Eastern terrorism. Now, I'm going to quote because I think this is a leap. We're on page 76 of L'Affaire Copernic. Quote, In November 1980, the BKA delivered some key elements to the French. The commandos of the Rue Copernic operation were five people who, once their mission was complete, spread out from October 4th flying from a Paris airport to Beirut. These five terrorists, in the snippets of data about their identities, included a certain Hassan, alias Amer, of Lebanese origin. Unquote. From here on in, the book starts following this Hassan of Lebanese origin. So too, presumably, do the French police. Now watch the leaps build on top of the leaps. We're now 50 pages later in the book about Ukopernik, page 120. Nineteen years have passed since the bombing, and investigators are following clues in 1999. I'm going to quote again because I want you to see how the case is built in the book. The book is in turn quoting a police report built up from unsourced information, some of which might even come from the media 
completing the circle. So here's the quote. Since 1980, the police suspected a certain Hassan, alias Amer, of Lebanese nationality. In April 1999, more was known about this individual. For the investigators, it was a certain Hassan al-Diab, a known Lebanese member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP, in Beirut in 1980, unquote. For listeners who don't know, Hassan is a very common first name, and Diab is a common last name. Now skipping ahead to page 121. According to investigators, the French police report says, Hassan el-Diab corresponds with the sketch of Alexander Panadriou. End quote. From that point on, they go looking for Hassan el-Diab. They go looking for him in 1999, but nothing much happens on the case until 2007. In that year, the French anti-terrorist judge Louis Brugier is replaced by a new judge, Marc Trevedic. Trevedic brought new energy to the pursuit of Hassan Diab. The first thing that Hassan Diab heard about the investigation of him that would lead to his eventual extradition and jailing was when a French journalist came to his class in October 2007. Hassan Diab is a professor in Ottawa. The journalist asked him if he was Palestinian. He said, no. The journalist said, are you sure you're not Palestinian? Diab was sure. From that moment on, Diab was followed and in November 2008, arrested. And this is where things get a bit circular, because the French journalist who went to Diab's class was none other than Jean Chichizola, author of L'Affaire Copernique. Let's recap. A bombing of a synagogue in Paris in 1980 kills four people and injures many more. Investigators find clues that the bomber had a fake passport for Alexander Panadriou, was a slim Mediterranean type of slim build and average height. Then the German police a month later tell the French that some Middle Eastern terrorists include a man named Hassan. Nineteen years after that, more is known. It's Hassan al-Diab. And eight years after that, a new anti-terrorist judge investigates Hassan Diab. In 2008, he's arrested. In 2014, he's deported to a French jail. So how was this more is known? How do they know what they know? How did the police connect Alexander Panadriou to Hassan, and Hassan to Hassan el-Diab, and Hassan el-Diab to the Ottawa professor, now in a French jail? In the next episode, we'll talk about the controversial use of intelligence as evidence to make the case against Hassan Diab.